How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Side Show Podcast, <laughs> episode 144. Pregnant pause. How do you like that, Zeke? Oh, it left me on the edge of my seat. Um, oh. Gave me right in there. I was really keen to find out who was on the podcast with me. Oh, of course, yeah. Because <laughs> you don't have eyes, I don't have eyes, our audience doesn't have eyes. It's all no, audio only. I wish I didn't have eyes for the film of the week. Oh, a little tease. Zeke, yes. do you have a fun fact for the Babadook? Or should I read my fun fact first? <laughs> Threw you in the loop there. Well, this week we're talking about The Babadook. Very exciting. And this is a film that I studied in high school, of all places. So I have a lot of history and a lot of things to talk about with this film. The fun fact I wanted to talk about was specifically about the budget and how the film had a $2.5 million budget, mostly funded from Screen Australia and SAFC. Uh, mostly thanks to producer Christina uh, Seaton, or Satan, C-E-Y-T-O-N, mm-hmm. uh, however you pronounce that, but she was an unsung hero, I believe, as a producer in this film, with Jennifer Kent, of course. Uh, but the thing I wanted to talk about is how they didn't have enough money solely for the construction of the sets, and this is something that Jennifer, um, Jennifer Kent really learnt a lot about working on, of all things, the Vazel and Trier film, um, Dogville. Mm-hmm. Which I forgot the name of for a second, which is ironic because there almost are no sets on that film. It's <laughs> it's a very meta version of a, what you would call a set. But what they did to get the extra funding, they raised thirty thousand dollars through Kickstarter specifically for the construction of the sets, which I thought was very interesting. How about you, Zeke? What's your fun fact? I actually have a couple here, but it's like I'm gonna go with um, I got a kind of cool fun fact, which kind of ties into sort of the the lower budget. Um, yes, of the of film. Obviously, director Jennifer Kent, this is her feature debut, which we'll mm-hmm. talk about a little bit later in the show. Um, her and uh, Essie Davis, who you know we talked a little bit last week with Nit Raz, yes, and obviously is co-starring in this film, mm-hmm. uh, both attended drama school together. Right, so, so the relationship goes back a while. Yeah, which I mean, no, obviously we've seen multiple directors have close relations and continual relations um, so it's kind of interesting that uh, you know S.E. Davis didn't pop up in the Nightingale. Maybe it was. Yeah, that been, is interesting. Um, I actually find this this one. This is my funny fact. Okay. Um, and I kind of was. This kind of makes a lot of sense because I did a bit of research on the on the film of the week, um, and was a little confused by sort of the the obviously the Babadook illustration mm-hmm. was tied to some. Uh, LGBTQ symbolism. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> yes, it with is. The, with the rainbows and stuff. And, uh, and this is kind of a fun... This is uh, great. Um, yeah. The film became a meme and a symbol of the LGBTQ community after Netflix accidentally placed it under LGBTQ <laughs> films. And I remember this in real time. It was okay, so funny. Yeah. That's, that's really funny to me because it's like, I was like, at first I was a little confused. I was like, why is this horrific figure <laughs> that, you know scares the living bejeebas out of you why's yeah. it got rainbows on it and obviously <laughs> a bit of mean culture so such a such a web 2.0 thing that would never happen to like scream to, to, or, i mean we could yeah. we could go on a whole tangent about how netflix has very weird categorizations <laughs> for some of its films yeah films it builds as quote a comedy end up being i think blue jay was put under a really weird it wasn't romance films i think it was put under rom-com <laughs> i was like uh, yeah, so <laughs> what on earth I'm, I'm sure there's a laugh in there somewhere yeah uh, at least in the first half of that yes, film. <laughs> definitely not in the second half of the film 
There's some very obscure ones. Um, oh, but yeah, that was my serious cool fact mixed in with my meme fact. I'm glad you brought it up at the front because I don't know if it was naturally going to come into the conversation, but that had to be talked about because it's so funny. It was crazy. Like people just decided like, this is our symbol now. <laughs> the Bubba Dog. <laughs> so, um, Jake, oh. I have to ask you. Yes. Now, this film came out in 2014. Yes. Which means it could potentially be on the poster that's sitting behind me in yep. the 1100 films you must watch before you die. Mm. And would is that up on that poster? What do you think? Do you think it's on there or not? I don't think it is. Okay. You uh, did look at my computer screen when you said that. Were you, were you looking? Dude, I can't receive it. <laughs> I had to spend the, I spent the first 10 screen. minutes of sitting in this room trying to figure out if that's Miles Morales. <laughs> It's my um, new wallpaper because okay, my computer's done this a few times now. It just like changes my wallpaper to like an old wallpaper for no reason. It would just like change. I was like, what? I was like, well, I need a new 4K image. Mm. So I found one of Spider Man. I can't. I think this is the Spider Verse image. It definitely looks like the Spider Verse. It could possibly be the the Spider Man like the PlayStation version of Miles Morales, but mm. more than likely. The Spider-Verse, which they've... I think they announced a new title. Across the Spider-Verse is the new one. Oh, cool. So I think that comes out next year. So that's exciting. Uh, no, the Babadook is not on the poster. Although I think that is a travesty and it should be on that poster. No, no, no more further comment for me. I think it should be. Mm. Well, you know what? It's interesting because we talked about it last week, Zeke, that we went into this... We wanted to do this film for years, specifically because we have very divisive opinions on it. You do not like this film. I do like this film. Has your opinion changed, or where where do you sit with it now? In terms of should it be on the poster or not? Okay, well you have to wait for my full opinion. Of course, in the second half. Don't of the spoil show. it too much. I, regardless of that opinion, do believe this film belongs it, on the poster. Uh, I, li- I like that wording. I like that wording um, a lot. Because, um, yeah, I think um, in the last. 10 or so years and you know we are going on a bit of a horror bender in the coming weeks mm-hmm. not to tease too Very much exciting. but obviously it's the month of October so it's the right time to do it <laughs> um, I think this is one of the more unique horror films of the last decade right um, and ha- and particularly it's um, Australian roots I think are enough to warrant why I would see this film placed on my 1100 list mm. um, just because um you know, I do, I do think geographical location of films or its geographical relevance yep. or con, con, contextual understanding is important to this list because we want to get a nice spread of films from all over the world. Um, we talked a little bit, that was kind of where Lamb sat a couple of weeks ago because yeah, it was Icelandic, Icelandic and, it's film, used, yeah. and it's unique, so it's really cool to get that sort of coverage. And I, I definitely yep. think, at the very least, this film sits in that uh, category of being kind of a an, an interesting, unique uh, Australian film. Yeah, a thousand percent. And th- there's definitely a lot to talk about its identity as an Australian film and, and how the Australian audience reacted to it versus the worldwide audience, mm-hmm. which is fascinating in its own right. But I agree with you in the sense that, I mean, uh, this is what we talked about. Like We talked about Nitram and Lamb and these other films that it's an interesting question because it's almost like a ranking system. Do we think it's worthy of this list amongst these films? Mm. And... It's like, why? And I think we're doing a good job lately explaining why without saying the film's good or the film's not good. Yeah. I, I think the important distinction is this is not necessarily the 1,100 best rated films of all time. This is the yep. 1,100 you need to watch before you die. Like, 
um, you know, you, you, even films that I apps I do not like at all, mm. I can see the importance as to why people need to watch that film. Right. For instance, absolutely, um, yeah. I mean, I think you made a joke last week about Easy Rider on the show. It might have oh, yeah. been last week or the week before. Um, yeah, it was last week. Yeah, because because um, Dennis Hopper was on the Super Mario. Brothers. That was it. And <laughs> you know, I actually quite like Easy Rider. Okay, um, cool. So, and I understand its cultural relevance. So, um, whereas you are not a big fan of that at all. And oh no, I I don't mind it. Yeah. It, it wasn't my favourite that we watched the, the, in that year of films we're mm. watching now, 101 class or 100. I think it was 100. It's yeah. 100. Um, but I'm the same as you. As I, I do understand its cultural relevancy, even though I was very... The abstractness of it narratively threw me off. I would love to rewatch it. And I have it on Blu-ray. I did mm. buy it. Um, I think it's in the classic section. I mean, we, we, Blue Velvet became a, a synonymous oh, yeah. name with uh, us and how much we really didn't like that film but can see why people would want to watch Blue yeah Velvet. that's another one i'd love to rewatch as yeah. well so maybe all these films that i walked out in you know obviously both those films you just mentioned were films that we watched in our first year of film too yep. so um hindsight is is 2020 you know so these films like i hadn't seen this film since 2015 yeah so neither yeah six years on where do i sit we'll find out yeah, that's the one. I like it. I like the little tease. Now, Zeke, I have a few things I want to mention. Some corrections and fun facts and little things in the last... Tweaks. Week. Tweaks. I like it. I like it. Uh, before we get into what we've been watching, I want to apologize. It is my fault that last week the episode did go up a day late. Crazy. It was, uh, it was further into the Tuesday than it was on the Monday. So that's my, <laughs> that is my, my rationale. That's got to be like... God, how many weeks consecutive do we hit the monday deadline uh it wasn't as great as <laughs> memories of murder we were late um that was our biggest one that was over 100 we did consecutively every monday yeah um so it's maybe close to the, what's what's the math on that like 25 30 episodes i mean we like to emphasize we always try and get one episode out a week that's oh yeah we've most, never failed that we've never failed that so and we're never going to so yeah. Um, well, you joked today. It's like we need to start recording these a little earlier <laughs> in the week than we have yeah, been lately. You know, it's getting to the pointy end of semester for me, and you've got yeah. a lot of work going on. So yeah. it's it's definitely um, it's you know it's a lot of work to keep a show running for 144 weeks. I mean, <laughs> I'm not gonna lie about that. It's, oh, it's, it's kind tough. of nearly three years now. So it's, yeah. So I, w- I wanted to throw that and apologize because people probably would have noticed it went up a day late. But yeah, it was a very, very good conversation, Nit Ram, and it was nearly two hours as well. So yeah, hefty one. It was a hefty episode too. So um, and hopefully that give you know, it, mate, you know that extra day gives them more time to watch the film. That's it. That's it. I like I like the attitude. Uh, I mentioned Sean Baker last week has a letterbox account. You should go check it out. I noticed someone else has a letterbox account that I think you might be interested in. Me, Mister Jim Cummings. Oh, I was gonna say me. But oh well, you, I mean you do. Yeah, you do. That's Zeke, not a lie. Zeke Zeke M H. <laughs> Letterbox. <laughs> you can go check that out. Give it a um, follow. Yeah. No, but Jim Cummings has a Letterbox account, so I thought you might be interested in that. Yes. Of Thunder Road fame. There you go. What's Love he going to do next? What's the next film? He's around because he did that film with, um, oh my God, Robert Forrester. I think he's his last film before he passed away after El Camino. And then I think he's on to a new one already. I have to watch that. We'll have to maybe have to yeah, in a, God, in a dead week called? search up the latest Jim Cummins film. Yeah, I feel we had like a the... big conversation. That was an episode Jack Bet was on. Yep, um, had, had a full conversation as to uh, 
where we saw him going. And I think it didn't didn't Jack make a very bold bet or something that he was going to direct a film in the fourth phase, the MCU's fourth phase, yeah. which so far hasn't been. I don't think it's been confirmed. But you know what? Chloe Zhao's Eternals is out in like two weeks, so like it's a pretty good <laughs> prediction. I think it's a fair prediction. Yeah. Considering like that, that's sort of where their heads are at in the MCU yeah, you give, land. You give Cummins a, a couple more award nods. Next thing you know, it'll be churning into the the system. Mm, we'll so. see. I I think Facebook might be a little early for him, but then again, I would have never guessed Chloe. Don't Zhao. expect us to talk about the Eternals. We're not going to. We'll, <laughs> we'll wait for Spider Man. We'll talk about them all in one big clump it, again. It's such a shame because like it looks. I love Chloe Zhao, but it looks really not anything to write home i don't i'm just not i can't care i got a no man land poster sitting right across my bed (laughs) it's a weird shout out to lunar and sx for their free posters that they throw out and speaking of superheroes the last thing i wanted to ask have you seen the new the batman trailer no no are you gonna i got sent by like four different friends of mine okay interesting and i feel like i've hammered home my trailer consensus you have you have Patterson has earned my respect. I will watch it for him. and Jeffrey Wright, both of them get me in the yeah. get me in the building to watch that film. Andy Serkis, Paul Dano, the cast is excellent. it's enough. It's like that's enough. I know yeah. I'm gonna watch it. Um, wait, sorry, I, this is gonna be a really. I'm gonna get. I can hear when I ask this question. I'm gonna get screamed. Oh, oh no! Who's directing? Matt Reeves, okay. Planet of the Apes. Okay. How good is that? So I'm cool with this. How Thank good God is that? Because I literally didn't yeah. know who was directing. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, it's just like, to me, so Matt, yeah, okay, well, he definitely in that trilogy earned my, earned my respect. He gets yeah. he gets a superhero film. I want to see where this goes. Jake, I mean, although I can't provide any insight, I'm guessing you watched the trailer. I did watch it because I'm excited, but I love the cast. I love Matt Reeves. Um it's funny because I think people were just so, you know, like, oh my God, it looks, you know, spectacular and dark and gritty and all these things. And it's like, yeah, it kind of looks like the most David Fincher-esque version of a detective Batman story. But I'm also like, it didn't really get me pumped. You know what I mean? Like people were freaking out and I just kind of watched it. I was like, I'm excited for it. But this, not to hash too long on, on the superhero conversation. No, no, we'll move on after um, this, but yeah. But this is one of the things that is going to lead to the end of this era. The end of, you know, much like the Western era we've talked about with, you know, Unforgiven being the, the last hurrah. Eventually, um, we're going to hit the end of this period of, of cinema where this is the dominant genre of film. And I think some of the things that contribute to it is that every superhero at some point is probably going to get the film that will define that superhero. And mm. Batman got his very early. Um, right. I, I, With I the think Dark Knight that, uh, trilogy? The, yeah, or... like the Nolan ones. Like, yeah. It's going to be... You know, you just talked about not feeling pumped. And I think it's because those films, they were spectacles in a lot of yeah. ways. Um, you know, we could talk about the Dark Knight, but the, a lot of them had really big set pieces. I mean... Like, all three of them have moments that are just purely about sort of adrenaline-fueled um, stuff, which we've now come to almost expect from a superhero film. But mm. back at that time was kind of unique. You know, it was yeah. darker and gritty compared to its Tobey Maguire Spider-Man counterpart, yeah. which was the only other major trilogy at the time, um, in which was more about the, the campy classic comic book style. Um, and 
so it, yeah it's like you said if it's giving you this fincher vibe that's great that's a slightly uniquer version but I, yeah. I think that's going to be a more quiet film in a lot of ways not in a like maybe more about yeah the detective side maybe it's going to be more like seven and less like um inception yeah in its no, no. set pieces i mean i've seen the trailer that's kind of the vibe i got and that's great there's nothing about the trailer I can point to and say this concerns me. Yeah. But I don't know. Like I gotta. Yeah. Actually, I will. I'll take that back. The one thing is the soundtrack. They use the exact same Nevada cover song they did in the first trailer. The exact same one. Okay. Like I get it. These different music. <laughs> Look, March twenty twenty two. I'll see it. Well, I'm sure we'll do an episode on it. I think it warrants it. Yeah, that'll warrant an episode. But, I, um, I mean, honestly, I would like to do. At some point, cover Reeves' Planet of the Apes films. Oh my god, yes. We've um, we love, we both love that trilogy. Yeah. Um, so it's it's interesting that, I mean, it would probably be Dawn, which would be the one that would get the yeah respect yeah. out of the the three. Well, that that was Matt Reeves first because he didn't do the first one. Okay, but, so but he, he did, did the other Dawn two. And, and, and and War. War. Yeah, um, and Dawn so is definitely the stronger sense. of the of the two. Definitely, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're both excellent. Yeah, but, but Dawn um, is just. Oh, next level. Speaking of uh, man, a bit of Gary Oldman. Oh, can't go wrong. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's look, excellent. I haven't watched the trailer. I don't plan on watching it. No, that's it's fair. Uh, I, it was sort of a rhetorical question for the audience. I knew you hadn't seen it. Yeah. <laughs> I just, it's like honestly, it's like, and we're coming up to a mega push to finish the year with with all oh, these films a lot. coming there's out. A lot, yeah, and I haven't watched a single trailer from any of those big films. Interesting. I've, I, you'd be proud of me, Zeke. I haven't watched a single Last Night in Soho trailer since the first one. Yeah, I see. I haven't even watched. Yeah, but um, yes. I'm proud of you. Thank you. Because I think that that these a lot of these films I want to go in blind because it's like it comes back to this thing that, and I actually think you know now we're moving more into that conversation of trailers. I think this is a problem with. I don't want to say our generation, but it is our cinematic generation. In the back in, the in my day, no, well, I think <laughs> I mean at the end of the day that the notion of a trailer at once upon a time was to sell you on on the film. Yeah. Whereas now it is transport. It's transformed into the frame. Like within hours of that trailer dropping, I saw my entire YouTube feed like flooded with things like. 10 things you need to know about the Batman yeah. trailer. And Reacts. Things, like, yeah. Or reacts like these. Like reacts are a whole layer of vanity in their own right. That you know we could touch on the Bo Burnham um, <laughs> live that's stream a, skit, which is one of the best jokes watch, in that show. Yeah, or that film. it is. It is. If if you watch that and go and don't kind of un- you think it's just funny and not like an actual commentary. Yeah, then you're missing the whole point of what was so good about that special because there were so many of those like actual like. Um, um, that that is one of the best jokes in there, though. Like yeah. his layers of reaction, oh, fantastic. Because it's true. Because it becomes so cyclical. This sense of reaction. I know we're doing a Pope Burnham episode now. It feels like, but like that, it, the the commentary becomes so thin and so pointless and so repetitive that there's like you're getting nothing from it. I mean, I feel bad. We never gave that show that particular special uh, an episode. It's all right. I, I think, think it, it landed in the uh, decades countdown. It did. I think. Unfortunately, yeah. it did. Um. And, you know, it's, it, but it is a, a remarkable piece. But yeah, the, I think that's what it comes back to. It's, it's now just often that trailer is, there's a whole culture behind trailers now. And the trailer is there to make money off its view count. But then the people that then 
you know, it cascades downwards where it's like people make money off watching another person's work. Um, and, and yeah, it's like analyzing stuff and it, it, all of it, 90% of the time is just conjecture. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, you, you know, we talked about with lamb, we talked about how, um, you know, you heard all like this guy that spoiled like three things and only one of them ended up being kind of true. Right. Yeah. Um, and it really is just a lot of conjecture. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, it's, it's like, I know I'm going to watch that film and I'm going to yeah. watch that film because of the people that's been, you know, I know I like the director or I like yep. what of some of his work and then a lot of the actors that are in it are actors that honestly haven't had the real, you know, they've either had the mainstream push in a film that they had like or in a film series that had no heart or, or like they, mm. they just did to make money so they can make films. I feel like a lot of them have really kind of pushed in the, the indie circuit for quite a while and, and kind of deserve a blockbuster of recognition, you know? The fact that you were listing all those, you know, the Danos and, and honestly, like, yeah, Jeffrey Wright and stuff that I honestly feel like are only just now, after, like, 15, 20, some of them 50, upwards of 15, 20 right. years, have just been slowly working in the background while, you know, all these other blockbuster people got their, their big pushes is... um Yeah, well, none of them, with the exception of kind of Robert Patterson, despite whether, you know, people liked him or hate him during the Twilight area or still do, and... And I still see comments like, oh, he doesn't, he looks bad as Batman. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, we haven't, we've seen shots of him glaring at the camera. Like, what sort of obscure reaction yeah, are I, you making from his performance, quote unquote? But they at the all moment? criticized Bale. And this is my thing. Yeah. It's like, it's all just talking for no real reason other than like every like the all these people that think they know better yet none of them would actually put the act like it's it's hundreds of millions of dollars put in these these productions they've made these decisions because they've made these there's rationale behind them i I think and um i will judge the film on its merits of the of when it comes out um and or i will critique it or i will praise it whatever it's appropriate for but. me it's that sense like when you log into like a twitch live stream of someone like really popular and their chat is just like like a blur mm-hmm. you literally cannot read an individual comment because they're going by so fast and it's like that's what this all looks like to me no. it's it's clutter like no. i feel almost dyslexic trying to read that stuff because yeah. it's just like impossible and to I, comprehend i think what's the, the <laughs> most important distinction is we have this weird with this whole consensus of trailer reactions or or stuff it's the mob mentality stuff you know i when i watch a film and i don't like it i'm not saying i don't like it because the general populace says they don't like it i'm i find rationale. have your own opinions i do and i don't <laughs> and i don't really need to constantly uh, like you know apart from a weekly podcast in which the, it may or may not be the film of the week mm-hmm. it's that's the only time i get to talk about it i don't go on on big comment chains and try and like or create videos in which I like, I, I find that really interesting. It's a, you know, it's, it'll be an interest. It'll be interesting to see how it pans out. It's nice that yep. we're back to this, you know, starting in November, pushing upwards now into February, we're going to have a big summer of blockbuster films. Um, these films that have been stewing. I mean, God, the James Bond film has been sitting in limbo for God knows how long now. Yeah. Um, that's sort of, this is what sucks as well. Is like, we're leaning back into that era of time where America gets films quite early. So it's like they have Halloween kills. They have Bond. They, they've had the Green Knight forever. I've seen people own Blu-rays of it already. And we don't get it on Prime for another two weeks. So that part's very frustrating mm. to me. Do- Dune! We had, Reddick, Dune's yeah. out! Yeah. We don't get it for until December. Yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous. We had our golden year. 
so 2020 yeah so we gotta we gotta like work with these films as they come out um i know petite Paman, Maman, um, which is the new um celine skamai film portrait of lady and fire i know that was meant to come out like later november at luna now it's not even mm. on their website anymore so i don't know what's mm. going on but well, I, I, we'll like, figure it out you know like i said paul schrader's new film card collector mm. uh, doesn't come here until december and yeah. that's one of the films that i've been looking forward to the most and it's like it's because you know it's like oscar isaac paul schrader love first reform so mm. it's like yep. i i sign me up for sign me up for this film he's a he's a gambler and it's like <laughs> and then I, I go on lunar i'm like oh well i've got like people already watching it now the problem is now we're back to that world where honestly in australia if you want to watch a film that early it's going through the old cheeky pirate way which is such a shame like yeah, that's the yeah. only way you have to do it through a mischievous circ- you know circumstance if you want to get that early and i'm like no, I want a cinematic experience. I'll wait till December to get it. Yeah. You know? Well, that that's the thing. I think I think there are certain films that I would bite the bullet for on that. Like, I have friends who have seen The Green Knight because they were just like, I'm just going to pirate this. I'm mm-hmm. not going to wait. Now, that's a film that I'm like, I'm interested in seeing. I'm not like excited to see it. So I can wait until the end of the month when it's on Prime. That's sure. fine. But there are other films that if I found it right now, that, you know, there's a 1080p copy, I'm, I might bite the bullet, you know? Yeah. So, but... Uh, can't bring myself some of these films no, like, especially like it's fair the enough. blockbuster spectacles like dune and stuff like that it's like you can't, i can't yeah. just give that up well, on a laptop well the examples i think of like the, the one for me i remember uncut gems it was like i did what i did to get that early but like that was never going to come to cinemas here so it's like, well, pff, I'm going to have to watch it on a computer screen anyway. Got that one pretty lucky, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did, you son of a bitch. <laughs> now, this might be the longest we've gone without getting into what we've been so watching I, this honestly, week. You know, the, I love it. It's I love funny it. because it's like, I feel like the last, or even the last five to ten episodes, we've spent more time talking about a subject in like right. these weird, in this first half of the show. We've ended up talking about the subject for like 20 minutes, which yeah, is yeah. nice because I, I do think that there are certain subjects in film that need to get a bit more attention. Like this is an interesting conversation to have because yeah, the world is open. I mean, both of us are getting our second shots this week. Yeah. Um, and then kind of the world slowly starts to open up at that point. It's like we start to go, oh. The world opens as soon as we get our shots, Zeke. Yeah, well, you, get, you sort of get what I <laughs> I'm mean. Play- I yeah. know, I know. Like, yeah, like the, the the world is starting to slowly turn its gears, for better or worse, whatever you want to call it. Um, but it, you know, it's like you said, America's starting to take that precedent again, and also these big blockbusters are starting to slow. You know, last year in in twenty twenty, you know, the the events of the world that for better, you know, not not they weren't great at all by any circumstance, mm-hmm. but we did get to shine a light on some very obscure films because yeah. of that situation. Um, so these smaller films that kind of took a backseat, you know, um, they started. You know, we started. There was a whole stint in this time last year where we yeah. were doing very obscure films, so um, quieter films. Whereas we're about to go into a summer of just blockbusters, which yeah. isn't a bad thing or a good thing. It's just a thing. No, well, that's it. I, th- I just think I think studios, now that there is a plan to get the stuff in, in cinemas, and I think what's interesting is that I think Disney showed that, you know, doing the dual release for Black Widow on streaming and cinemas, it didn't work. Because Shang-Chi, it went straight to cinemas. Eternals, Spider-Man, it's all going straight to cinemas. So yeah. that's interesting in its own right, but I think I think these distribution studios to be more deliberate. And, like, you look at Dune's release window, that is a very deliberate release plan. Where it's like, this comes out here, this comes out here, this comes out then, 
And um, I think we're even, getting short end of the stick, which sucks, yeah. but, you know, it, it is what it is. Even with um, smaller films, like last week on the show, when we talk about Nitram, which yeah. is made by Stan, or, or, you know, funded by Stan, mm. it's like they knew that they wanted to put, like, it's coming out on Stan. Or, or we ended up, we talked about, I think it was November it's, 20th something. Yeah, it's like, like a month from now. It's so a month. It's so it's like soon. they're giving this, I think that's six weeks it'll be yeah. in, in its entirety on, on cinemas. And I think that's just the right way to do it. Mm. Like, yeah, yeah, you can absolutely put it straight on your platform after it has its six, seven week run. But, you know, if it's, if it's a good film, give it its cinematic run. People want to go watch it in a movie. So. Yeah. No, makes total sense. Jake, <laughs> what have you caught in the last week? Yeah, um, I finally started watching Succession. Which I'm mm. uh, very happy. I finally bit the bullet on that. I just kept like not doing it. You know that you know you have those shows like like for me The Crown, Ozark. These are shows that I'm just like Ozark is a big one. I God, everyone, everyone yells at me about that. It's just like it's Ozark and Billions. They're the two that are like I would like to get mm. like ticked off my list, but. They're, they're strong shows, and I think they're shows that require like your unrequited attention. Right, you, know, you need to be like invested in them, and and oh, you know, with everything else going on, it can be tough sometimes to like find that balance to be like I'm going to sit down and watch a show that requires all of my undivided attention. Yeah, yeah. No, it's like that, especially when you just have all sorts of things you got to deal with on a daily basis. Mm. It's just adulthood, which is annoying. Um, but no, I was able to give Succession my my full attention. I've only seen the first four episodes. Because I only started a couple of days ago. Still um, four hours of content, though. Well, yeah, it is. And and season three actually starts today. Like, I know Blake and Steven, they've jumped on it. They've already seen this premiere episode. And it's going to come out weekly, which means I can catch up pretty quickly. Mm. Is it ten episodes a season? Uh, yes. Although I think this new one is only going to be nine, for okay. whatever reason, or the, as far as I'm aware of. Mm. So, yeah, I'm only four episodes in. So, like, it's really only like 20% of the series. Although that in itself is kind of weird. Because you watch four episodes of a TV show, you kind of... You're only just getting into the groove of the characters and, and the story and the pacing of it all. And it's like, wow, this is like one-fifth of what's already out there, what everyone's talking about. I legitimately think the magic yeah. formula for a show is 10 episode, ten one-hour episodes. Okay. I think that that is the perfect length. Because I think of, off the top of my head, I think of some of the best shows I've seen in the last decade. They've been the ones hitting the, the 10 one-hour episodes. Right, yeah. Um. I mean, I've ten I've hours a season is is a good, good amount of storytelling. Yeah, well, it just it just depends on the pacing of the show, and it's like, I know Better Call Saul is ten, which is awesome. I know this last season is going to be thirteen, um, which is interesting. I'm, I'm mm. the more the better for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, I think in terms of the pacing, well, I'll start off for those who don't know. It's essentially this show about this media conglomeracy and. Specifically, Logan, who's sort of like the um, well, he's the CEO. He's, he has his 80th birthday in the pilot episode, and the idea is that the family start looking into what the future is going to be without him, without getting into spoilers. What happens early on, mm. um, but it's absolutely fantastic in terms of the the rigmarole of, you know, the the, the business industry side of it. Like, there's, there's something about the writing that's so clever because it is sort of a parody in its own way, but it takes itself serious enough. Well, that you buy into the drama. Obviously, of these very rich clearly a, a homage. Well, not a homage, but a, obviously in correlation to the Murdoch media conglomerate. Yeah, of- yeah. And I will talk about the showrunner who I've got his name here, Jesse Armstrong, who actually did talk. It's his brainchild, the show, and he did talk about it sort of being a Rupert Murdoch-inspired type show, but going on from there. Although the name I really want to bring up, and I teased this to you earlier, mm-hmm. um, off the air, is 
the director of the first episode. So by by which inherently he will have his fingerprints on the rest of the show in terms of how it's shot, in terms of the performances and the kind of tone they're going for. And of course, I'm talking about Adam McKay, Oy. which is really interesting. Now, I'm a little like, mm, don't like these, you know, whip pans, smash zooms, like, like they kind of work in the big short, they kind of work in Vice. They still kind of work here. But I think what's more interesting is that you look at those political films that Bombshell he's done. Too. Hmm? Bombshell too. He didn't direct Bombshell, but Bombshell has a very similar... Oh, yeah, we've talked about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, you're right. It does have a very similar style it's of... It's of... Reitman, sorry. Uh, it was the guy who did... I'm forgetting his name, but it was the guy who did Trumbo. Jay, Jay Roach. Jay Roach. Jay Roach, um, that's I it. I cannot believe I had that on the tip of my tongue. I'm impressed with myself. Um, but yeah, you're right. It has very similar camera movements. I don't know why that inspiration is coming because I, d- I don't know if it works necessarily... But I think what does work in terms of Adam McKay's fingerprints is this tightrope balance of yet yeah, of it being about rich people and taking it seriously and making an audience like myself who does not have the kind of money that's been thrown around in this in the story relate to it, but also being a parody and understanding like the world is so screwed because these are the people in charge, like making that sort of commentary because mm. that's exactly what the big short advice is all about. At least in my in my opinion, I think that's exactly yeah, what those films yeah. are about. Yeah, look at these morons running the country, <laughs> essentially. Um, but I, I think it walks that tightrope really well. There's the level of absurdism there, but again, I think it takes itself seriously enough to make you invest in it. And I think part of that is, yeah, it's a show about it, it's essentially bold and the beautiful, but for a media conglomerate instead of a fashion company, which I don't think is a bad comparison whatsoever. It's obviously better than bold and the beautiful. But um, even though that show has its fan base, for sure, I mean, it's a, it's a soap opera, so, you know, it is what it so, is. It's one of the funnest things to walk past at, like, 4.30 in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. My mum obviously watches it. Yeah, being a middle age, Middle-aged woman liking the soapies. <laughs> but some of the storylines are hilarious. Right. Like, I remember Who Shot Steffi. That was huge. Yeah. I remember that. There you go. <laughs> On the beautiful appreciation corner. Exactly, maybe. yeah. It'll be a no, side No, but I, side I get show. you. It's, it's sort of like can be Socratic at times, probably a bit Well, I'm, I'm just talking more like the story of, like, it's a family drama wrapped within the, the setting of, like, this um, corporate we, background. Doesn't, it doesn't surprise... I mean, when you think about it, it doesn't not make sense. I mm. mean, it's it's kind of an interesting... It's sort of... It's kind of the hilarity of, of things like Knives Out places on that, mm. that sort of inheritance of, of wealth and such when a sort of patriarchal figure passes yep. on. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Also, also an 80th birthday in that film mm-hmm. with a bunch of children trying to get what they think is theirs. Are you looking forward to that sequel? Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Cool. Ryan Johnson, love um, him. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I, I definitely um, sounds quite interesting. It's on Binge, if I'm not it's mistaken. It's on Binge, yeah. That's how I'm watching it. So I actually watched The Babadook as well. So there you go. A little there tease for later. But I'm very excited. It's going to be great. And I can't wait to... Hopefully by next week, I've caught up to season three as it, as it releases weekly every... I guess every Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you can listen to this show and then watch Succession simultaneously. Mm. <laughs> but I'm loving it. It's it's excellent. So you can far. watch the successive episodes on Jake's ah, review of Succession. I like it. I like it. But yeah, beautiful. Can't yeah. wait to watch more. Well, for me, I've only also only caught a TV show this week um it's a light week but fun week uh i started watching new girl 
Um, right. I'm trying to remember if you mentioned this last week. Look, or not. I might have I might have touched on it. I definitely. But you at least started it. I'm not too sure. Escalated dramatically. I've watched like three. <laughs> I'm midway through the third at the end of the third season now. So it's like that's awesome. It just didn't. Stop. And it's fascinating. Jake it is fascinating. Um, the amount of like kind of A-list people that that get episodes on mm. on the show. Obviously. Um, it was a big show for quite a, particularly Jake Johnson got a um, quite a big push from that show. Obviously, starring Zoe Deschanel, who is probably commonly you know it's funny. I was I like searched her up, you know, because obviously the show ran I think from twenty I want to say twenty twelve to about twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen. Okay, yeah. um, and for her, she'd obviously already done her like her big film was probably Five Hundred Days of Summer. And looking at yeah. um, Elf was a big one too. What's that? Elf. Yes. John Favreau. Uh, I, was, I was about. I was about to say. Looking at the preceding films, of mm. the, it was. I was really surprised to see that she's kind of done like nothing post this show. Um, Interesting. She's done like a couple of voice acting roles. Um, she's not even. Uh, she's in Trolls. Like oh, yeah, Trolls those animated. Tour. Those animated ones, but not like no live. I think the last live action film she did was in like 2015. I was like, that's so crazy. Like, oh. she's also 41, which was like mind-blowing um yeah like crazy to think how like but i guess like yeah it kind of makes sense 500 days summer came out in like 2007 and like which is a, quite a long time ago now it's nearly 15 years so it's kind of crazy but it's a really fun show it's great uh, very funny but yeah some of the a-list like um speaking of halloween kills jamie lee curtis uh, oh, cool. is in the show and uh, I guess that Rob Reiner is in it. Which oh, that's is funny. Very interesting. I know he's pretty open to just kind of doing roles here and there. Yeah, but, yeah. But the cast was, yeah, it's quite a like gets quite a lot of interesting like uh, cameos and such in it. So fun show, very easy. I'm obviously I'm kind of in the golden years of the show, hitting that season three four how, mark. How many seasons are there? Seven. Okay. So it, it, it's it, not ca- crazy. Yeah. But you also like, oh, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of my sitcoms, and and you you often know the golden years of of a, of a show are often season two to four if there's a seven season show. Like right. it's obviously it will start its decline eventually, which is a shame. But it's like, yeah, I've been watching that, and then trying to wrap up. My name is Earl. So they're they're the two that I've been going back and forth between. I've been really utilizing that Disney Plus subscription. Oh, no. Let's change the password to screw for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. You know what I did actually, and no one's heard this yet, so I hope no one hears me through the walls. But actually, this morning I went on Netflix, and you know how like your whole family have like little profile pictures. Yeah, I actually went ahead and changed them all to like Squid Game profile pics. I wanted to do them all like the doll that like shoots people, but you can only do one like icon per profile. Which yeah, really. Just, so I just made them all like different Squid Game characters. I gotta build myself up to watch it. You, you know, it's funny it's the good. the array of you know talking about squid game the array of different um watching styles like some people just cannot watch it with subtitles oh it's, interesting like i've had about four people come up to me and they're like i'm watching squid game i couldn't watch it without the english dub and i was like really like i feel like i don't know i don't think i know people who are just like can't do it need english dub like unless it's like they they secretly <laughs> secretly doing it i don't know they can wait English for the Mark Ruffalo parasite the bullshit they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I've watched last week. I mean, that's I've watched a enough. lot of it, but it's... yeah, no, exactly. No, that's that's fair enough. Well, 
It's interesting because is there anything you want to tease? You've, you've been doing something career updates wise. Oh my or? god, me with a career update—that's a crazy one, <laughs> Jake. For the first time, <laughs> and cinema Sacho audience. Oh my god, um, this is heavy. For the first time, yeah. No, it's look. It's been a long year. Mm. Um, been a been a tough year. Yeah. Um, but I'm I, I'm happy to say that uh started to turn a corner and uh yeah been writing, um yeah. which is nice. So I've started to develop. Two uh, scripts simultaneously. One is definitely going to require a little bit more nursing than the other. One's definitely a short. One might go into feature territory. We'll see where it takes me. Um, yeah. You know, this is a very interesting process. Jake writing, um, sort of talking about that off the show. Um, but it is, you know, obviously, uh, as most, uh, you know, I have talked briefly, not a lot, but yeah, obviously I'm doing my master's right now in teaching. Mm. Um and that's taken up a lot of time. So creatively, it's been a bit of a uh, a dry spell. Um, obviously, mentally, it's a, we we know as as writers that mentally sometimes you go through periods where you just can't you can't do it. Yeah. Um, whether that's personal reasons or or you're you know you're having a dry spell with ideas or you just don't have the inspiration coming out at you at different points. And only recently have I really started to find that footing again, which is which is nice. Um, I mean, this time last year I was working on a lot of sets, mm. um, but not with my own creative ideas. And it's been a long time since I've created something that was my original idea. So yeah. hopefully, you know, if it keeps running this course, we'll be moving into summer with maybe some really creative uh, projects that might be able to tackle over, over the break, which couldn't come quick enough, Jake. Mm, December couldn't come def- quick enough. Definitely. <laughs> I like that. So, well, I, I feel that too because, as you know, I wrote a script a few months ago well, on the second draft that all I've done in the last two, three months is just change the name. <laughs> so it's been tough. tough. I mean, this, this I actually, I was telling um, somebody about Blake yesterday. I was like, this week is actually my, probably the most chill week I've had in a long, long, long time in terms of just things i got to get done, which is not that mm. much. So that's exciting. Probably oh, just going to dedicate it to succession, but... Hopefully, hopefully a third draft in, as well. But yeah, it's yeah. it's such an interesting thing because you know we obviously don't have um, too many prominent uh, career update uh, moments in in mm. and probably recent memory compared to some of our earlier episodes where or even just you know take it back a year. Um, but it, create writing and creating for our, ourselves and even guests that we've had on the show comes in, in flows and waves and moments and. Um, you sort of never know when that's going. It does leave you for at times and will come back at times when you least expect it. And unfortunately, that's the problem. You know, we made a joke about it earlier in the show, but yeah, adulting sometimes does take precedent sometimes. So you gotta, yeah. uh, you end Little up losing. Annoyances. Yeah, you start losing it sometimes. And, and, and that's such a shame. Um, I would love to be in a position. I mean, the dream position is to be able to, to work and create stuff in conjunction with one another. But mm. You know, in order to get to the that point, you know, you have to build the right sort of steps to get there. So, um, it, it was really nice to kind of have like an influx of, of inspiration and, and drive to write that stuff. Um, so, yeah, working on a couple of uh, romantic pieces, which, mm. you know, that's, 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 you know, it's kind of funny in its own right, but it's like, <laughs> um, what, what, kinds of feelings come at the right times yeah for and, sure and you know it's 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 pretty interesting i think 
the only other time I've ever had any sort of creative spark in the last year is probably when we've like spitball ideas when we're just hanging out with each other. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it is it is an interesting thing that that the filmmaker journey, as you, you yeah. call it. it, it weaves and ducks and all, all sorts of things like that. No, it's true. Well, 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 that's it as well because like yeah, you know, like a lot of the stuff I do is still involved with video and cameras and stuff, but it's not like the same as your own creative endeavor, you know doing your own things like that and it's interesting i was actually going to mention i did shoot a wedding last saturday and the reason i'm not going to mention it because i've shot weddings before but th- this was unrelated to like anything that i've done for work it was very specifically like here's a friend's wedding here's some new toys that you've never played with before to do a live stream go have fun um and I, yeah exactly and i wanted to mention i worked with the canon xf 705 which is a bloody beast of a camera so more than my bank account. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's all it's all Murdoch's gear, which is good. But no, it was cool to do that live stream, and you are, you are at mercy of the internet connection that you get. But it was cool to play with that and mm. use OBS, um, not just for like game streaming, but like to actually stream the wedding to an unlisted YouTube video and and plan that. And yeah, it was it was just a lot of fun because like I got you're right. It's not cre- it's, it's not like we're making a script, mm-hmm. but it's like you you, you there's some creative intrigue and that and just playing with new toys and new things and like those ramps next to you i bought these like little cable management ramps and it's like you know 20 bucks each at bunnings and it's like yeah you you can't be very creative with cable management ramps but like it gets you excited just buying things and then using it practically it's cool so definitely one of the highlights last year was like buying all that equipment and then Mm. like being able to test it out yeah and i liked shooting like films and and being a dop and and working in other roles that weren't creative but it's like i feel like when you like writing stuff and then directing stuff too it's like you can you can alternate but you you always seem to always want to come back to i want to tell a a story through Mm. that way rather than that way you know. exactly it yeah. so it's really interesting to talk about but jake it is time for us to move into our film of the week what are we watching this week on the show z we're watching the babadook are you all right yeah yeah no i'm fine you don't have to be fine you know just a bit stressed at the moment all children see monsters. Not like these. I want to report someone stalking me and my child. You can't get rid of the pepper dog. You can bring me the boy. You can bring me the boy. Papa. 
single mother, plagued by the violent death of her husband, battles with her son's fears of a monster lurking in the house, but soon discovers a sinister presence all around her. Ooh, that's not good. Burped halfway through that. (laughs) (laughs) Jake. Was that the Babadook controlling you? Entering your essence? Um, Yes, I end up vomiting black stuff. Your essence, Davis? (sighs) Close. You are speaking of Essie Davis, who co-stars in this film. Yeah. It's interesting. Probably stars. It's, I was going to say, it's interesting you keep saying co-stars. It's interesting. I mean, yeah, I think it's a fair notion. I think the son is just as critical a character, albeit I do not know his name off the top of my head. Yeah, got Noah Wiseman, who go. notably is not really in anything else. I think he was in a... He's in something that came out last year. I don't know if it was a short or a miniseries or he's something be, along those he's lines. He's going to be like 16, 17 now, right? Yeah. Um, what's he? He's well, he, he, his character turned seven in this film, released in twenty fourteen. So that was, oh my god, was that seven years ago? That was seven years ago, Zeke. What the hell? Mm. What's going on? So he might actually be closer to like a young teen. He might be fourteen, fifteen. Yeah, it looks like a young teen. Interesting. I like his letterbox profile. It just says. Noel is Wiseman actor. is an actor. Yeah, I just, I literally <laughs> just watched that. Looked at that. I saw that this morning and, and lost it. I was like, that's so... Because I've never seen a profile like that short. Mm. <laughs> or a bio that short. So, Jake. Yeah. The Babadook. The Babadook. Um, duk, duk, duk. It's a <laughs> film, the feature debut of Jennifer Kemp, who we mm. did uh, The Nightingale earlier in this show's uh, life. Yeah, way um, back. So, 36. 30, there you go. 36. <laughs> I knew it was in the 30s. Um, in which we both were pretty big fans of. Um, yeah, it's great. Yeah, I'd say it was pretty great. Um, albeit very confronting and quite uncomfortable at times. But mm. um, this film, uncomfortable for different reasons. Right. More conventional reasons, I would say. Um, really? Okay, so, The Babadook. Obviously, this is a film that I'm not a big fan of coming into this revisit mm. um we've you know it's quite divisive between the two of us you love this film yes um like you said you it actually was one of your centerpieces for your high school um yeah, my, sort of my studies, studies yeah. which is which is funny because it's like i think back to mine and i've got the third man which we've done on the show interesting no well we, no, haven't, we haven't done we not, haven't done it on the show we've right 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 show um that was one of mine um god i can't even remember oh, what was the documentary could not remember it off the top of my I think it supersized me. Um, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think every high school has ever <laughs> in existence has seen supersized me. Hmm. Not sure if that was correct, but I'll right. have to think to myself about that. I know The Third Man was the, the, the um, film. Interesting. Like, the yeah. noir genre. Um, yeah, it's, it, look, revisiting it um, was more of a fan this time. Okay. Um, I think this comes back to a very interesting notion I brought up in the first half of the show about... Um, uh, I think when you watch films, you know, you're constantly analyzing and you're constantly like learning and appreciating about genres and stuff. You're, you're, uh, the more depth knowledge you have, uh, the more you can appreciate things. Um, I don't like this film as much as, um, the Nightingale. Mm. Um, although I know they're not in the same genres. Um, I'm also not a big fan. I'd like to emphasize that this does have a bit of a skew. My review um, I'm not a big fan of horror films across the board. Right. Um, I don't like the manipulation of emotions um, in the sense that it feels a bit more, <laughs> uh, 
No, well, that's just film in general. I was about to say, yeah. um, I feel like it's... I don't disagree with that. Right, right. Stay with me, Jake. Stay I am, with me. I am. Stay with um, you. <laughs> I just think it's more overt, sometimes in horror. Um, I think this film... You know, we talked about the, my appreciation for things like Halloween and stuff from uh, predominantly from a visual perspective. Mm. Whereas one of... Um, you know, When we go further into this review, I, I think one of the, the biggest highlights for me is the, like, the soundtrack, the score... Mm, um, yeah. In this in this film, and not so much the the visual side. Um, I be it the design of the Babadook monster is easily one of the scariest things I've ever seen. Mm. Um, yeah, that's a no. It wasn't wasn't didn't sleep very well after I watched <laughs> this film. Not gonna lie. <laughs> when did you uh, watch it? Saturday night. Okay. Or Sunday night. Sorry, okay. So last night. Um, yeah, I, I rewatched it like maybe two hours ago. So not, yeah. not too and I watched ago. it with lights on. Um, right, I'm really glad yeah. I didn't watch it with the lights out. See, I had my headphones in. I went straight from that to rewatching Monster, which is the short film she did like a decade before this. Yeah, so that was a, I did do a bit of research after okay. film and then did see this was this drew inf- uh, influence from what looked to be a more um, from the I didn't watch the short right. Monster, but I, from what I looked at, it looked kind of like a 1930s, 1940s sort of horror motif. It so it's it's black and white, so it sort of feels more aged because of that. And I think it was also a much cheaper film than the Bubba Look, which is in itself already a fairly cheap film in terms of it being what two and mm. a half million, barely plus, I guess. Um, I think it was more overt in that uh, in that homage to those earlier noir films, and I, there's plenty of that in the main film, which was fascinating to to see how overt the surrealistic aspect of it was and mm-hmm. how much literal homaging and intertextuality there is with you know 20s I guess German expressionism and things like that the Babadook literally inserting himself into those classic images but with the short film I think it's just like a more simple jump scare fest in a way it's nowhere near as clever as the film is I think the elements are there the story elements of mm-hmm. pretty much the last 20 minutes of this film is what the short film is mostly in terms of where it ends up and how it wraps and what they did with the monster. But even the monster itself is just like makeup. Like it's not like a creature, which is interesting because in comparison, I find the creature like, yeah, it's terrifying on the surface, but it's actually almost more appealing in that like young childhood storybook aesthetic, even though it's creepy, but it's not as creepy as the overt monster in the original short film Mm. called Monster. So I almost feel like there's a little bit of softening in the main film, which is very bizarre. Mm. It is scary. I'm not going to deny that. But I, f- I found that interesting. I was like, it kind of almost fits in that childlike wonder of you know the storybook. And sure. I it could see a child looking at it and not being scared by it. It it definitely has the the boogeyman sense, doesn't mm. it? Um, I think that's I think it's an intention there. Um, it's. It's an interesting film because it's I, I I'm trying to think where I, I want to start with, right. with this conversation. Um, what are some of the bigger elements that really stick out to why you like this film? Why does this film, you know, or even more importantly, this mm. is the first time you've seen this film in in, in six si- years. In six years, yeah. What's your take? Because you've you know did much like me. It's been that long. How's your take on this film now? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I, I, I still appreciate it and like it just as much as I did originally. Although, in that case, 
a lot of it was, you know, being kind of spoon-fed and, and introduced in the film in a very specific way, or being short, shown the short film Monster ahead of time, and then that being, like, homework, mm. is how would you turn this into a feature film, which I thought was an awesome piece of homework. And we all failed miserably at how we would expand it, but it's like, all right, well, let's elaborate on the sense of grief. Let's elaborate on, you know, where where is the father in this scenario? Because it was, it was unspoken mm. in the original short film. Um, so because I was introduced in such a specific way, I kind of had this inherent love for it. And I think watching it now, I sort of, it, it almost felt easier to digest in that way, to read and to understand where the inspirations came from. If you look up Jennifer Kent's inspiration, she's a, there's a million films that she listed. I think I think the um, Rosemary's Baby is probably the biggest one for me in that it's a psychological horror more than anything. Like, it's scary, but it's not a jump fest, scarce, uh, a fest, I should say. Um, there's there's visual imagery that's very creepy, but I think to your point, that's not the standout in this mm. film. Um, but what's funny is part of that semester that we did the surrealistic elements of it, we did a surrealistic short film, mm-hmm. and I just showed you a little clip from it before we started recording. Yeah. And there's a lot of inspiration in terms of, like, just the tabooism of the subject, the fact that it's about a mother who almost kind of wants to kill her son, the fact that her sort of sexual desires and... and her lack of, of sexual satisfaction is prominent in this film because constantly being referenced, which now that I think about it, it was kind of strange for us in the 12th grade to be watching that. I think I remember mm. Mr. Anderson telling us to grow up. We all laughed at the vibrator scene. <laughs> it's maybe a, a teeny bit too young to watch that scene and not laugh or like giggle. Yeah, well, it. carrying the, the level of maturity, right? That's exactly. Cool. But, but I think the exploration of those taboo subjects, even like and we're getting into spoilers, we all know the show now, we jump into it, mm-hmm. but like, even like her snapping the dog's neck, just things like that, it's like, I love that it goes there, mm-hmm. that it, it, there are a lot of sharp, pointy ends to this film, and it's hard to digest, and one of the things we studied was the idea of this having a very targeted audience, because it was a niche, cheap horror film that doesn't slide into the horror genre conventions necessarily, like it kind of plays of it and there's a mm. surrealistic aspects that are in the film. I forgot totally that the whole second half of the film is so claustrophobic that we pretty much don't go outside after that sort of midpoint in the film. Mm. Once they're locked in, once the Babadook sort of enters Amelia, like the next 40 minutes is just this huge claustrophobic nightmare full of surrealistic imagery and lots of things that just don't make sense. And it's it's I think it's just awesome. I love all of that shit. Mm. But um, I can understand, and I know people. I mentioned it earlier to a friend today at work. Like, oh, I'm rewatching the Bubble Duck tonight. She's like, I hate that film. Hate it. It sucks. The ending sucks. I hate it. Makes no sense. And I can't help but appreciate that vitriolic hate for it. That yeah. I don't think you have that much. No, I mean, I, I I <laughs> think you've got a lot more layers. Right. To it, then I, I think it's not as clever as, as you're giving it credit for. Interesting. Um, okay. And I think I have this this film to me, though not as frustrating as The Invisible Man. Oh God, no. Um, no. <laughs> Jake, stay with me, buddy. Um, I think uh, for me, it's it, it. Yeah, it's very. 
it's not as um, layered as something. Even like if we're comparing it to Kent's late, you know, with the Nightingale, I, I think there's a lot more layers going on, and they're historically horrific layers that mm. that, that Kent's exploring in that film. Um, but are equally, um, I I think way more profound. Um, and I I find it interesting because you know Australia, the way Australian film, you know, we go into the the topic of how Australian films address horror. Mm. Um and you Wolf know, Creek that kind I was of going thing. to say yeah. um yeah. it's interest and this is where I, I'm I'm kind of leaning into is like you've hit the nail on the head there with Wolf Creek is even like you take Wolf Creek or you take um the Nightingale or you take um you know even things like um Picnic at Hanging Rock you know we take mm. Peter Peter Weir which is a, that's a psychological film that plays around with, yeah that's with much more similar to this film than Wolf yes. Creek yeah um. I actually think, yeah, Hanging Rock is definitely a, an apt comparison um, with its sort of surrealist play, but they all three of them kind of ground themselves still in a realistic setting, um, and their horrific acts or their monsters in those films are human humanoid, or in Hanging Rock's case, an unexplainable uh, spirit of the land. It's still mm. connected to the land, whereas yep. this is yep. way more like a classic sort of, like, all, albeit like you said less slasher monster more psychological monster right but it's still like a boogeyman-esque yeah, monster in inhuman creature yeah which is you know clearly uh, you know which possesses um yep, yep. amelia at some point and i find that really interesting because it, it it's almost jarring to have it in like and this does come back to the thing where it's like why i think this film belongs on that list is because it's really cool to see an australian film take this route um, right a something we haven't seen conventionally shown in I can't think of another Australian example off the top of my head. Um maybe like I, th- I wanna say it's called Tusk, which is like a wild boar that goes on a Oh yeah. Um Or oh, is is it called boar? Like B O A R. Yeah. I actually have that on Blu ray, but I've never watched it. Um But you're right, that's an Australian I think horror film. Yeah, boar movie. There we go. Um yeah. and that is yeah, an Australian <laughs> yeah, horror esque film. So it's I think it's like we don't, yeah, we don't see these very often, so it is kind of cool to see that setting. But I think everything, a lot of the, th- um, the reading you can get, the intentional, uh, the initial reading of this film is is it's ever present. And yeah, you you can explore it. It's interesting because you are coming from a place in which, like, in secondary education, mm. this film was like the subject of your life for like a really decent period like yeah, you spent well, for at least a few couple of months a few couple months, months yeah. where you're like systematically breaking down every element and yeah i'm sure if we i could probably offer a sane consensus with something like the third man mm. um whereas i'm coming in as someone who watched this initially at around the same age as when you watched it right. and watching it now knowing what i know now and yeah i can appreciate stuff but um it's uh, for me it's like i got everything that i thought i would get and then doing a bit of post watching film research um everything was kind of reinforced from my my reading um, right yeah um i like essie davis's performance in this yeah oh um, she's excellent she's great yeah. i think i still prefer her performance in it ram though um interesting but for different reasons um yeah well in this film there there is sort of that scale that she goes through i think her voice is really telling like when when she first speaks at the beginning of this film mm. i was like so thrown off it's like that's what she sounds like Especially coming off Nitram, where it's like it's a natural speaking voice, 
but it just seems so soft, like way more soft than I remembered. And then you contrast that with her screaming almost demonically by the end. Like her performance is excellent. Mm. It's wonderful. Um, and even the young child, I think it's funny. I remember, well, I shouldn't say I remember because it was only this morning that I was reading the actual interpretations that he's autistic or that the character is, which kind of makes sense. I didn't think about it at the time, but I'm like, that kind of makes sense. But it all feeds into this pure frustration that that S.E. Davis has to carry for the entire film. And you're mm. like, this kid, I just want to kick him. <laughs> he's a pain yeah, in the ass. Yeah, and it does get flipped on its head in the second half of the film where you know yeah. she's quite monstrous and, and you know almost borderline domestically abusing him at, at, at points in time. Yeah. Um, because of the influence of this of this Babadook, and obviously, you know, it's a it's an allegory for grief and the mm. stages of grief, and um, I think that's all there. Um, for me, it's like where this film really succeeds in its horror is definitely in the the moments of of just the build. The build is just anxiety inducing, yeah, yeah. Um, particularly um, you know things like when like the the i that motif of reading books at bedtime and just adding to that boogeyman checking under the bed like you know yeah, that, yeah. that whole they they build it up very clearly and then um sort of it's a good take on the boogeyman i definitely like how it's like like you said it's the monster is not necessarily um it's you know uh it's childlike scary really um and then kind of goes from being just this child fictionalized boogeyman to like legitimately really scary yeah 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 um, but that, that that's it's a growth that involves i guess yeah um i'm gonna have to get his name up because um his uh soundtrack is just next level off of the score uh, yeah um, yeah yeah well one thing i will say i don't have the names up but i know jennifer kent again taking inspiration from her work on dogville i think in the production design department noticing that um, Lars von Trier had sort of a family net, and you talk about this a lot with your own films, of having a very tight-knit family as your crew. So she went all over the world. She didn't want just Australian crew, but she grabbed, you know, DOPs and composers and all sorts of roles from all sorts of different countries, which I really appreciate because I think it gives this film a very unique texture. Now, I know you're not huge on the visuals of this film, but I think it actually does have a very unique visual flair, especially for an Australian film. That isn't overtly Australian. It's very sub, um, suburban, but I mean, some of the accents are quite Aussie. Yeah. But it, but it doesn't carry it, that, um, yeah, like the Australia suburbia. Yeah. Like, sort of like something like baby teeth. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it doesn't is, wear it on its shoulder necessarily. No. no. Which I which appreciate. I actually, and I think that's where it comes back to the sort of the international standardization this film kind of has. Mm. Apart from the accents, that's really the only dead giveaway this is. In Australia, um, yeah, it's going to easily take place in the US, in mm. you know uh, Canada. Well, this was met with a very positive reception internationally, was it? Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's the thing I was mentioning earlier, or teasing at least, was the idea that this film kind of I don't want to say bombed, but it didn't it didn't really attract attention in its native country. And I think Australians, I remember reading a lot about how yeah, it would only appear in art house cinemas. So I guess like your Lunas, um, it wouldn't end up at a Hoyts, for example. Mm-hmm. And that it wasn't really getting the the critical reception that it frankly should have here, but then worldwide, it left a much bigger mark in mm. worldwide audiences, and that, that's how it made its profit back. Which I, is I, interesting. I think that's that's definitely Kent's um, definitely Kent's uh, uh, idea of of getting people from all over the world and not making mm. it very in house probably helps with that. Yeah. Um, 
It's very telling because you look at something like the dry. I didn't like the dry because of its Australiana ness, and mm. it it exploded here. Yeah, like it did so well here. Yeah, well, that's why I loved it. Yeah. Well, uh, that's it. I think yeah. I think it's very interesting. Australian audience want very Australian films. I think if they, which I think is kind of well, uh, kind of yeah. sucks. True, but I oh, I I I'm actually going to get of this. Okay. I think I don't think it does suck. I think we should be wanting to express our um our lifestyle and our culture and, and we shouldn't be trying to constantly make steps to appease or, or address um, the rest of the world. I, I think films that really succeed critically internationally, not just domestically or just internationally, are those ones that embed themselves in their culture but have universal and, interna- and internationalised meanings mm. that can be pulled away. I mean, Parasite is a great example of something that yeah. embeds itself in South Korean culture yet carries its international appreciation. And I mean, even yeah. more... We con- talked about it last week, Squid Game. Yeah. How, like, I think part of it is because it's... it. They made it not f- trying to appease to a worldwide audience, almost inherently made it appeal to a worldwide audience. Yeah. Because it does have sort of the quirks of South Korea that we love, but then plays with that in a fun way that we as a Western audience can really get into. Yeah. And I think the reason I say... I'm not trying to say that we should shed any sort of Australian identity from our films... Um, what I'm saying is like a film like this that is universal enough that it could take place anywhere, why can't we try and make more films like this? And I think the reason is because this didn't do well in Australia. Mm. And I think that's a shame. It's like, why can't we embrace more films that just Horror is don't tough, lean tough, on that too much? Sell, though. I mean, it's a very... Is it though? Um, I feel like horror is a very easy way well, to make your money back. I mean, though. we're going to talk about we're going we could go into a, a tangent on the one of the biggest weaknesses mm. of a lot of Australian film, particularly something with such a, a two point five million budget, is there's no money put into marketing, like right. at all. Like you know, um, a prolific example of the last couple of years was that Battle Long Tan film that had thirty million poured into it, but they oh, had yeah. less than a hundred, uh, less than I think it was less than three hundred thousand into its marketing. Like, yeah. It just came, went, disappeared. And you um, look, you look at big films in Warner Brothers, or pff, I mean, Disney, Marvel stuff. The marketing budgets are literally the same as the production budget. Yep. Literally double the amount of money spent to market the film. It's bonkers. But yeah, I I agree. I think that's a problem as well. I just, and I don't want to harp on it too much, but I just found that really interesting because, is that what it says about Australian cinema? Is that Australian audiences won't embrace a film like this? That even it remotely doesn't rely on the stereotype. Now, I adore Muriel's Wedding. That is a very, mm. very clear Australian film. The accents and everything. It's just, it leans into it so much. I think it's excellent. So, um, so I'm not trying to break any rules here. Uh, <laughs> no, no. It, and this is really important for this conversation. Yeah. So, obviously, this film pre- premiered at Sundance, 17th of January, 2014. Mm-hmm. Film came out in Australia, 22nd of May, 2014. That is yep. no man's land for film. Like May, um, well, you're leaning into the 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 American summer period there. True. So you look at that. I'm trying to be specific. I mean, that was when Interstellar came out. It was okay. around May June of that year. So you, yeah, okay. You push this into the summer blockbuster territory, sure. But this is a horror film. Where where does this film belong? Literally around this time when we're reviewing it in October. This mm. this is a horror film. I mean. You know, the, the, this doesn't need that much of... Uh, would need far less marketing if it was put in the right time of the year. You know, if you if you put this film in Hoyts in, in October and went, this is a this is a, convent, this is a more internationalised 
horror film, a film that caters to more uh, of your classic horror, psychological horror conventions and such, people would go see it. But like you said, it was only in art house cinemas when it came out, and that probably suffered it in its own right, because there's no there's no market, there's no money put into the marketing, and unfortunately, and I mean I feel like this film would have got a lot more appreciation at the time in Australia had it been put in an appropriate time. But like you said, um, it does come towards the summer blockbuster, but would have been competing against ridiculous marketing budgets yeah. too. So I just think it's tough because it's like. At the end, I mean, this is literally what we wrote about in high school was, you know, the idea of how does this fit into the, the not the genre, but the, the placement of an art house film. And part of that is that, is the lack of marketing, the fact that it was only in art house cinemas. It was never really distributed to a mainstream audience. And I honestly don't think mainstream audiences would really fall for it. It goes back to, you know, my friend who absolutely hated it. And I'm not saying that she didn't get it, mm. the idea of grief. She hated the ending. You know, oh, why, why is it a pet now? You know, and it's like I can I can point to why in in terms of a a cinematic standpoint, but I don't think it makes her stupid. Yeah, okay. No, I agree with you. I think it just makes this not, you know, Halloween twenty eighteen or, or it. Yeah, or it or yeah. And exactly. I mean, it kind of if there was if you were looking at the most mainstream comparison to this film, it probably is Stephen King's It, um, with the fact that you know like child fears and preying on that and definitely some of the um more like the more german expressionism stuff like when she's watching the like the 1920s sort of like mm. uh, like the charlie chaplin stuff and the and the babadooks creeping into those those images there's definitely um more overt easier to interpret uh, examples of that in things like stephen king's it so obviously mm. i know it came out after um this film so there might be even um, some correlative uh, homage. There. Well, I mean, I, I mean, it's obviously based on the novel and the miniseries that came out way before this film. This is true. But I was talking about things that like, um, like more the visual I, like, stuff. Yeah, or? like you know, like that projector scene where he like. Oh, that's a good. Yeah, it's a good um, example. That's kind of manipulating with the images yeah. they're watching. Yeah. Uh, so it's sort of like, but that was a much easier to interpret. Um, version in it that was the more standardized right. blockbuster horror conventional way right well it was used in a way to scare the audience yeah whereas this is a comment on what's happening underneath and for me i might actually kind of lean towards this being my highlight scene in all honesty but what i loved about it is it sort of comments on how you have samuel who you know loves uh, magic mm-hmm. but also loves this violence and walks around with the the crossbow and all of these violent weapons but I loved how it sort of creative, sh- creative weapon. I know he's a creative kid. Bloody Home Alone Seven over here, whatever we're up to now. Which Did you I, see, there's another one coming out. I haven't seen the trailer yet. It's um, what's his name from uh, uh, Jojo. Jojo Rabbit? Yeah, yeah. um, which I'm, uh, we'll see. I've heard the trailer's terrible, but <laughs> we'll see. But what what I, what I like is that as a magician, he's you know tricking people, and then you look at what early cinema was doing. You know, a trip to the moon. It's about tricking people. It's about creating effects visual effects that trick the audience and what the hell is like mm-hmm. how did they do that and i think there's a nice juxtaposition there but i liked how the bubble inserts himself into these images as if cinema slowly developed into the stage of not only can we trick people we can scare the hell out of them as well and that's why you get your you know your nosferatus and stuff in the 20s and you know i'm not i'm not going to pretend like i'm a huge history buff of this era of cinema in particular but that's what i've noticed is like we started leaning more towards the horror aspect especially in the 30s with frankenstein where that was a bit more 
you know, let's scare them with makeup and prosthetics. For sure. While I think earlier with Nosferatu, I mean, the part of that, obviously, he's visual, he's a terrifying looking, like, creature, I guess if you want to call him that. But also, like, the, the visual tricks of shadows and making, seeing shadows sort of loom in presences, making that scary mm. visually. I think that's where a lot of this film is trying to compare it to, which okay. I really appreciate. But um, I understand your your comparison to it, especially the projector scene. But I think that's used more just like, let's creep the like kids out. Like more con- conventional. Exactly. Um, yeah. And that's yeah. where the difference between something like a monster horror and a, psycholo- a psychological horror. Yeah, for sure. Um, which is why like this film, it's like probably more akin to something like The Exorcist. In its, yeah, for like, sure. Especially I mean, the latter, both really well. Yeah. Like its later scenes. Like its later scenes definitely kind of have like... Yeah. Especially after Amelia's possessed. Well, the, well, the Exorcist kind of goes into more Easter eggy territory with the mm. fact that, like, it's almost like you have to freeze frame it to see certain images flicker on screen, which yeah. I love that shit. This is a bit more overt in terms of homage and things, like, you know, the hole in the wall that sort of, when the investigators come, sort of magically appear, like, yeah. um, fixes itself. Like, that surrealistic imagery, I sure. think, is really awesome and a little more. I don't want to say on the nose, but it's not as subtle as like a freeze frame of a devil face in the corner of the frame. Yeah. Um, for, for me, the, yeah. the the strongest element of this film that I enjoyed the most mm. um, is probably not plot-based. It honestly, like I said earlier in this review, was um, the music, which was by Jed Kozel. Okay. Um, creepy ass, man. <laughs> um, and, and honestly, I'm going to get it. I'm going to give him credit. The Babadook book... Um, illustrations which were done by um, that's right was it, it was Alex Juhaz I believe it is graphic designer and illustrator of pop up book Mr. Babadook which Amelia reads to Samuel was Alex Juhaz mm. um, that's what I've got here as of IMDB trivia um, so even just the idea of like putting that in a storybook where I mean, it goes back to semiotics of like what we mm-hmm. associate the storybook with is like going to bed and that sense of peace and putting the kid to bed, bed. And, and mixing that with the horror imagery. And I adore the scene when it comes back and it's completely rewritten. All the pop ups, you know, tell the future events of the story yeah. when she chokes the dog and what it's, happens to her. That oh, it's so creepy. It's very creepy. Um, and it's the illustrations are quite prolific and that's sort of where i think this film's biggest strengths are in things like its subtler um storytelling one of the scenes that i i think is a really interesting and particularly the the dynamic between the two I, I find it funny that you're so frustrated by the kid when i find essie davis's character incredibly frustrating for a lot of the film i think um she's I mean, I mean I'm joking, over, of course. Of like, course. No, no, no. He, but he yeah. is deliberately designed to be, like, yeah, impulsive and, and frustrated. And, like, you're meant to kind of be frustrated yeah. by him. Was burning onto the anxiety of, of that. The tabooism of, like, why would a mother want to bloody kill her yeah, son? Yeah, and yet, and yet this mother has done nothing than kind of being quite, you know, obviously so uh, enveloped by her grief of her husband dying mm. on the same day um, to the point where, like, she has... Um, the birth, a mutual birthday with her sister's uh, right. kid. Um, so the, the, there's subtle uh, forms of neglect and always putting the kid kind of on the back burner that you kind of get the reason why he's so um, impulsive sometimes and, and quite like... Um, yeah, well, he's, he's yeah, not kind he of getting the right attention. He still constantly affirms his love for his mum mm. and, and actually often doesn't get recipient. Like when he hugs her and he, she rejects him, yeah, well, even even in the very first scene when he's almost strangling her as he's falling asleep yeah. with her, but then she sort of 
separates and they're sitting so far apart from each other in the bed. Yeah. Just like immediately showing their disconnect. Yeah. And yeah, the tabooism of that is awesome because you don't really see that. Yeah. It's sort of this expected maternal thing of like a, a mother loving it her is, son. It is an interesting sort of flip on it, isn't it? Yeah. Um, especially when you consider Kent's follow-up film from this, which is <laughs> pure maternal... Uh, Maternal oh revenge. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's interesting to to look at um, sort of the evolution over the course of those, you know, those six years between two films. Um, you know, between wow, was it six? fourteen to twenty twenty? Yeah, oh, it was twenty nineteen. Nineteen. Okay, still five, five years. years. That's, that's a bit of a jump. Yeah, that's for a sure. Bit of a jump. Um, but yeah, it's, and like I said, it, it does tie back to that earlier conversation where this is, like I said. Um, that you know australian horror is often grounded in either historical realism or just contemporary realism hounds of love is a great example of that oh it's, god it's a great example yeah um uh like there is there's blatant horror in that film and it's horrific um but it's horrific from a, that sort of realism point of view yeah um yeah so that's that's sort of where i kind of sit with the with the film no that's yeah. fair enough i Would think you have anything I- else you'd like to add yeah, it's a few things. I mean, like we talked a bit about the sound and the soundtrack. I love the way that mm-hmm. it sort of it does this multiple times, where it just sort of drops mm-hmm. or it cuts. I love that when you know when the, when it's sort of building, but then she puts the book down and sort of instantly drops. Or when I think it's when she goes to not to burn it, but I think she goes to throw it. There's a few instances like that, and then even the way, for example, we're inside the sheets of her, she's lying asleep, and then we get that time lapse. Which what makes it so creepy is that. Is, there's no warning to it. All of a sudden, the mo- the motion of the image is moving like rapidly, and then the sound sort of plays with that. I just I I, I know you've already mentioned it, but like the soundscape in this film is so varied and terrifying. And terrifying is true. Yeah, it can't it can't go underrated. I want to talk a bit about the effects. So there's one thing I'm I'm in. What did you think? Because a lot of it was very um, in camera, sort of done on the cheap. I mean, the opening scene of her sort of in the car, but it's, it's done very surrealistically where we don't really see the inside of the car. Oh, see, I'm trying to remember, do we see like the outline of the car inside? It's a lot of her in a black void with lighting specifically before she like falls onto the bed. And it's kind of done on the cheap, but first off, this is all intentional with Jennifer Kent. Yeah. A lot of this was done in camera, even um, the Babadook being stop motion when he's crawling across the roof and stuff. Like, something about stop motion, and I will say this about the first Terminator. The ending in the first Terminator is one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen in my life. Because it's stop motion. Because it doesn't look good. There's something about it that makes it more real and more creepy. I think it it complements this film. I'm not sure if it would work in every uh, instance. I think it right. works well with, obviously, the surrealism. So the consistency this film goes with its surrealist roots mm. is what makes that work yep. for me. Um, if that had just been it, everything else had been normal and real, and that was the one thing, it would look out of place and jarring, and probably right, wouldn't yeah. work. But because of everything, like when she's like levitating into the bed, mm. and um, one of those scenes that's really subtle with it is when you know she gets the, the that day off from work because she's so sleep deprived, and yeah. she goes to the, the the shopping center, which is such a mundane place to have an ice cream but it's such a weird sort of dreamlike surrealism yeah it's like the one tiny bit of peace in the entire film by the very ending of course but like a moment away from work a moment away from her son just eating ice cream cone by herself 
unlike the the final scene where mm. there is still that 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 reprieve there that definitely looks way more real there's not as much soft focus there's like she's in the moment whereas yeah. when she's at the shopping center it's almost like when i say tranquil i actually mean more like uh like just completely detached from the reality around her yeah yeah um like kind of like almost if you were intoxicated and you just or you were like on drugs or something like that like you have no real familiarity with the world around you you're yeah, just yeah in it um i think that's the important part of that is really to show that although it's a reprieve it's still a disconnected reprieve she's not finding ground yeah she's not peace. and and it's very short and it's immediately replaced by the, the 10 missed calls you know yeah it's a very brief moment of euphoric escape yeah for sure. which you're right but with the end it's not juxtaposed in the same way that well it is juxtaposed i should say in that it isn't euphoric it's just nice and bright and calm mm-hmm and and she's accepted the you know the grief that she now has well, to live with. Well, she's working to accept the grief. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, obviously, coming back to the end of the film, like you said, why is why is the Babadook a pet? It's because grief is not something that just disappears overnight. You don't mm. defeat it. Yeah. Um, you work among against it, and it's interesting. I want to pose you a question. Um, Ooh, a question. So, um, you know, in that, that latter scene where she goes to feed the worms. Yeah. Um, and is asked by, you know, her son, oh, can I see him? And she goes, when you're older. Mm. Um, what do you think that that line means? Right. So, because from that, that surrealistic sense of... Because you, you can look at a film in two ways of, you know... The, I mean, the one way is that the Babadook is the, the, the analogue of grief. The mm-hmm. visual representation of that. Um, whether you believe it actually exists or not, whether she's physically going down in the basement to feed a creature, or if it's just a visual example of us being like, she's dealing with this. I mean, we see it when she admits to those investigators, like, yeah, my you know my husband died on the day of his birthday. That's why we haven't celebrated until now. Like, it's, it's still a weird. It's such a strange scene. It's kind of a little uncomfortable the way that. But I I think that's like it's uncomfortable, but it's like it it's a sign that yeah, it's a very uncomfortable conversation to have. But at least she's having it. Yeah, she's not shutting out. She's not cursing women. True. <laughs> True. All of those things. So I think that's the the manufacture uh, manu- manifestation of that. And that's like it's a good word to use. In regards to the sun, you know, when you're older. I guess it's tricky because it could almost be as simple as just a conversation. Like, he knows that his father's died. The kids make fun of him constantly mm. about it. Well, yeah, but he don't think he understands it, but he also doesn't quite gauge it. Exactly. And I think it's, he's, it's something he's not mentally able to comprehend any of this. Yeah. Not really. Yeah. On a surface level, sure. I mean, on a surface terms, level, he just thinks it's a boogeyman. Well, yeah, that and the fact that, like, all these other kids have dads and I don't and they make fun of me for it and they make me feel like it's my fault that that's... And, and for the longest time, his own mother makes it feel like it's his own fault. For sure. Um, so I think I think that is this sort of almost a symbolic thing of we're going to have this conversation one day about just how complicated this uh, situation is and that, like, I don't blame you for the death of my husband. Mm. Um I think his name was Oscar. Yes. Which is actually, I made this note earlier as well that I think it's interesting you almost never really see him in this film or you never see their life together. You don't have, you know, we, we the dead girlfriend trope that we always talk about. Oh, with the, the, the video montage of yeah, happy moments. She's not watching tapes of them lovey-dovey or anything. We never stop see that life. Me. Yeah, stop <laughs> filming. I, w- I would love to see it, just to see a guy in that role. It would be so funny. We should we should make that film. Yeah. We we've 
joked about making that film, yeah, didn't we? Have. We, we yeah. have, yeah. But I like that we don't really... We never see what sort of happy life they had before. We sort of only know mm. this woman as someone who's dealing with this we horrible thing. We do see thing. him at, at points. We do film. see him. We get his head... Bring me the child. Bring me the child. <laughs> <laughs> and we see Giddy's head get cut in half as well. Oh, that's awesome, that scene. But I think... And what I love about that last scene in particular is... And I forgot about this. It still pro, uh, poses as a threat. There's still the, sh- the POV shot as it looms over Amelia. She sort of leans back in fear. Mm-hmm. Like, it's still there. This is still a very hard thing to face. Yeah. But she's doing it. For sure. You know? Um, I mean, I think that's simply what it means is one day you will learn to understand what this horrible thing is but you're too young to comprehend it fully. Mm-hmm. But yeah, with, with the, where where's your head at with that one? No, that's, I think that's, you hit the nail on the head. Oh, I just wanted cool. to pose you that question. No, fair enough. I like it. Well, Zeke, what's your highlight scene for the Babadook? Um, to be honest, it, we've actually touched on a couple, but it's got to be the uh, the initial reading of the book um, mm. really gave me the Wiggins. Um and the, the Wiggins, the, the Wiggins, not have a two old manner, but yeah, it, it's the <laughs> illustrations obviously discussed earlier in this review. Yeah, that that there, and then the follow up after the destroying of the book and seeing it on the doorstep is just like oh yeah, it comes it's back like a weird, you. it's fascinating. So there, that would be it because it's sort of like yeah, it, you know, especially when we're talking about that analog with grief, it's, mm. it, it all complements it. So what about you, Jake? Oh, mate, uh, it's tough. Like, like I said, I love the scene when she's watching those images and the Babadook inserts himself into the into the films. Mm-hmm. I think that's awesome. Um, I love... I just want to give a shout-out to Robbie, who uh, they should have got together. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it needed... You see, now, now watch it, because here's the thing. It's a tough audience film, but the audience that was my media class... We were so like, oh my god, don't do that! Oh my god, she's gonna kill the dog! Oh my god, oh my god! We were so invested, and we were really invested in poor old Robbie. He just want to ship him. He just want, yeah, we were just shipping them the entire time, and we were very, <laughs> we were very disappointed that he didn't show up at the end. But rewatching it now, I'm actually kind of glad he didn't because it was one of the worst parts of Invisible Man. <laughs> like when he shows up at the end, so dumb. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm at, now that I think about it, actually, I actually like that Robbie's not there. It's not like here's a new man. He's a new man for you. I kind of, I've come around on that, which is yeah. good. But I wanted to mention our media class was were, were big avid shippers of Amelia and Robbie, which is great. Um, in terms of my actual highlight scene, I'm gonna stick with that. I'm gonna stick with the images because I, I just found that really fascinating. That that was my biggest new takeaway mm-hmm. after you know studying it years ago was what that scene meant in terms of how cinema is about tricking and deceiving audiences and eventually terrifying audiences and how this film sort of does all of those things with Samuels and Medition and all of that jazz. No dramas. Well, yeah. The Babadook is currently out on, did you say three streaming services? It's Jack? on Netflix, Amazon Prime and Binge. So I've also got it on Blu-ray. So Have at it. Have at it. Exactly right. But Love speaking it. of those streaming platforms, Jake, what mm. is new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week? Coming to Netflix this week, Night Teeth. She's a college student moonlighting as a chauffeur who picks up two mysterious women looking for a fun night in LA. However, he soon uncovers their bloodthirsty intentions mm, and must fight to stay alive. This seems interesting. Yeah. I think Megan Fox is in this film. I don't know if she's one of the two 
to LA women, but uh, sounds interesting. Could potentially, yeah. Um, coming to stand this week, keeping the the horror theme in check. Actually, this kind of works out really well for us, Zeke. But we'll, we'll explain why in a second. Coming to stand this week, the first six Saw films, the first five Nightmare on Elm Street films, the first two Conjuring films, and 1982's Poltergeist. This is very exciting. I like you're doing a little head bob. The there. works. The works. Uh, coming to Disney Plus this week is Bad Times at the El Royale, which I haven't seen yet. I also don't think I've seen. Oh, that. very nice. I think I've seen bits. Yeah, I remember the trailer. I've been like vaguely interested in it, mm-hmm. but um, there you go. Uh, Penguin Bloom, the Aussie film, coming to Prime this week, and of course you mentioned it earlier, Succession season three starts. Well, as you're hearing this right now, the first episode's out. Get on that. I will be catching up slowly over time. Uh, now coming to cinemas this week, we have The Last Jewel which is a Ridley Scott film starring Adam Driver, Matt Damon, and Jodie Comer. The historical epic follows the duel declared by King Charles VI. Now, it's funny because I remember hearing... I heard a couple of comments saying this is really bad, but then everything I looked at from what you were reading, Letterboxd, Rotten Tomatoes... Doesn't hate it. I, I, I don't see the hate for this film, so I don't know where I got that initial opinion on, which is interesting. I'll we'll have to so. give, it a, I might give that one a look. Yeah, so Adam Driver can bring it back. There you go, yeah. After a net. <laughs> I love it. Uh, the Harder They Fall is based on a novel around the true story of an outlaw who, upon learning of his enemy's release from prison, reunite the old gang to seek revenge. This sounds like it could be up your alley, Zeke. Well, good sounds old intriguing. Western. And finally, Malignant follows a young woman, Madison, who is terrified by visions of the murders of strangers until she decides to find and save those victims. Yeah, so very strong horror theme throughout. Well, speaking of horror themes, Jake, <laughs> we're moving into a director's corner next week. But Jake, Ooh. what is the director and what are we watching? So, uh, the films we listed for Stan, what could it possibly be? We're doing Wes Craven as our director's corner. Very exciting. We almost did Jennifer Kent's Babadook as a director's corner, but we figured we'll get it in a little earlier and that way we can do a nice classic. Next week on the show, we're watching A Nightmare on Elm Street. The kids of Elm Street don't know it yet, but something is coming to get them. There's something out there, isn't there? You just see cuts happen. What did that, Lieutenant? I don't know. What's the coroner got to say? It's in the jaw and puking since he saw it. They're gonna kill me for sure. Did you do it? There was somebody else there. He was locked in a room with a girl who went in alive and came out in a rubber bag. No one knows where it came from or who it will visit next. Nancy, there's something wrong with you. You're imagining things. Nightmare on Elm Street. Do you believe in the boogeyman? No. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. I'm about to spoil the shit out of this for you, Zeke. But this is a logline. So right. Don't blame me. It's, it's okay. The monstrous spirit of the slain child murderer seeks revenge by invading the dreams of teenagers whose parents were responsible for his untimely death. Did that work? You covering your ears? What did you say? <laughs> I said nothing, Zeke. I didn't hear that. Okay, good. Perfect. Cause... I heard monster and that's it. Yeah, no, that works. That works. So Freddy Krueger. I was, I was totally going to mention, this actually works out really well, the scene when Amelia's dragged down into the basement or tied up, that is totally Freddy Krueger brought into the real world. That is totally what that is. But, uh, 
Anyway, that's that's my little. I've never seen away. this film. Horror. So yeah. we heard my review of the Babadook. Not the biggest fan of horror films. Mm. Um, and yeah, I just kind of missed the horror train. Basically, of the eighties, um, was yeah. enjoying other other genres. <laughs> um, but I yeah, obviously got to tick this film off. Um, yeah, yeah, it's exciting. And Wes Craven. So he also did Scream. So I'm going to try and because obviously it's a director's corner. Going yes. to try and get a couple of his in there, do a bit of research on him because I'm very unfamiliar with this. Um, honestly, it's like only up until probably two or three years ago did I watch the first couple of Carpenter films and right, let alone yeah. um, Wes Craven. So going to have to give that a good investment. Yeah, it's exciting. It's been a long time since I've seen this, but I do love this franchise. I love Freddy Krueger. I've seen the first... I've seen, I think I've seen the first three films plus the 2010 remake. Um, so like four through to seven I haven't seen. I think I watched Freddy vs. Jason when I was like really young, mm. too young. So I don't remember anything about it. But I, I know who wins, <laughs> technically speaking. So, so just to um quickly mm. clarify. Yes. That Halloween film that came out, that's the sequel, is it? Halloween 2018? Yeah. Yeah, it's a sequel to the original. So Halloween Kills is the sequel. To Halloween Kills is a sequel to the Halloween sequel to the original Halloween. So it's basically <laughs> it's basically the third film. Okay. Chronologically. So we can go see that because we've seen both the two that proceed. Yeah. It's not got a good rating. Ah, that's a shame. It's sitting on a 2.8. Yeah, we both really like the 2018 one, but um that will come out the week after next, I believe. So uh, we'll see how that one goes. But yeah, I'm excited to do Nightmare on Elm Street. I, I have a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot, but like, a lot of people that I follow or slash am friends with who've rewatched this film in the last year don't like it. They really don't like it. So really? I'm wondering if I turn a, a leaf on a Nightmare on Elm Street. We'll see. Intriguing. Possibly. Well, until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with A Nightmare on Elm Street.